morning we're going to be in 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 and 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. You can flip over there now. Uh, and if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we'd love for you to take one of the ones that are at the middle of each aisle up under the chairs. Have somebody pass one down to you. That could be your copy. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you to take it. We'd love to talk to you later about what you've, uh, what you've read there and to follow up with you about what we're going to discuss together this morning. Uh, we're in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 because we've been walking verse by verse, section by section through this letter. If you're visiting with us this morning, that's typically how we handle our times together in God's Word on Sunday mornings. We, we like to take a book of the Bible, a letter or a, a law book or a prophet, one of the uh, stories about Jesus, take the book as it was written and just move through it sequentially, verse by verse, to make sure we're covering not just the parts we really, really like and feel like we're doing great at, but even the parts that maybe we don't know exactly what to do with or the parts that challenge us and expose things about ourselves that we'd rather keep hidden. I think that, that, that latter statement that the Bible sometimes exposes things about us that we'd rather keep hid, hidden uh, is especially relevant to what we talked about last week and what we're going to talk about this week. Last week and this week, we've been talking about money. Paul wrote this letter to his friends. One of the main reasons he wrote it to them was to try to convince them to give money to support needy Christians in Jerusalem. There were Christians in Jerusalem who were having trouble even just making, meeting the basic needs of life, of food and, and shelter. So Paul's traveling all around the ancient world, spreading the gospel to people who didn't know about Jesus yet, establishing churches in every city where people become Christians. And then he's going back and visiting them and he's writing letters like this one to them and he's trying to teach them what it looks like to be faithful to Jesus. If Jesus has loved you in the way that Paul's described to them in the gospel, what does it look like to, to live from that? And in this letter, one of the things that he's pointing these new friends to, these new Christians to, is that if you're going to be with Jesus, one who was rich beyond our imaginations, who lived in eternity and glory with his Father, a reality that we just can't even begin to get our minds around, much less experience ourselves, if, if he gave that up, became poor for you so that you could become rich in him, what it will look like for you to experience that grace is for you to spread that grace, even through money. So uh, I said last week that chapters 8 and 9 aren't divided in the original letter Paul wrote. They go together as a unit. This is kind of part two of a, of a, of, uh, of a series that we did part one of last week. So I think I need, the first thing we need to do before we get into what we're going to talk about this morning is give you some, uh, some scenes from, from previous week's episode. All right, so last week at the beginning of chapter eight, we saw that Paul points his friends in Corinth to this model of generosity. These other churches, not far removed from them, churches from a region known as Macedonia, he wants them to see how those guys were giving their money so that it would inspire the Corinthians to think about how they should be more generous. He, saw, he says at the beginning of chapter eight that... He wants them to know about the grace of God that had been given among the churches of Macedonia. Here's what he says about them. Here's where that grace of God showed up. In a severe test of affliction, he says, they had it hard. But in the midst of this hard situation, this hard life circumstances they were living with, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In fact, Paul says, they were giving beyond their means. They were giving of their own accord, he said in verse 3. They were begging us, he says in verse 4, earnestly for the chance to give 
to the needs of these saints that they never even met. So Paul's put this model in front of them. These guys have it hard. They are impoverished and they're overflowing with generosity and not because somebody's twisting their arms. They're overflowing from joy that's in them. We talked about the fact that Paul was giving them this model not to shame them, not to make them wonder why they're not more like the, the, the Macedonians and wish that they were. He's given them this model to make them ask, how do these Macedonians have joy in affliction? How is it when they don't have any margin in their financial lives, they're overflowing with generosity? What have they tapped into that has made them like this? How could I tap into the same thing? Paul gave them this model to make them ask why and how to set them up for what he says in verse 9 of chapter 8. He says to them, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. What had these Macedonians tapped into that made them so incredibly, even radically generous? He had pointed to it in verse 1 of chapter 8 already. He's talking about the grace of God here. And in verse 9, he explains that grace. These Macedonians get it. They get what Jesus had done for them. So Paul's writing to his friends in Corinth saying, I want you to give and not just to prove yourselves. I want you to give because of what's been given to you. He doesn't motivate them through shame or guilt. He doesn't motivate them through power, through arm twisting. He simply motivates them by God's grace. So in verse 10 of chapter 8, where we come this morning, he turns his attention to what he's actually going to ask them for. Before, he was just talking about these Macedonians. He gave them a model of what's possible. Then he pointed them to what made things possible for the Macedonians, the grace of God that these Corinthians have also experienced. And now in verse 10, he turns straight to them and he asks them to give. So from verse 10 in chapter 8 through the end of chapter 9, what we have is Paul giving them a profile of what it would look like to give from grace. To give not because you think you have to, to give not because you feel like you've got to earn something, but to give because you've been given to. To give from joy and grace, not from compulsion. So last week we talked about why to give. We tied it into the, to, to verse 9, the message of the gospel. This week we want to talk about how to give. What does it look like to give if Jesus is our model. We don't have time to go into all the details that I'm going to read to you here in a moment. I am going to read verse 10 all the way through the end of chapter 9. Then I want to come over that whole text and pull out four things, four marks of giving from grace with Jesus as our model. I want to begin by reading this passage. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read. This one's a little bit long. Fair warning but it's beautiful. This is the word of the Lord from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, this giving, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Notice that word readiness and listen for when it comes up again. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, 
But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you out of his own accord. With him, we're sending the brother who's famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we're sending our brother, whom we've often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who's now more my partner and fellow worker for your, excuse me, now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they're messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now, It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we'll be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it's written, he's distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they'll glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. You can be seated. I I said before, uh, there's a lot more here than what we're going to be able to get into this morning. I want to pull out four brief things that Paul says here. Four characteristics, if you will, of what it looks like for us to give from grace. The kind of grace that was shown to us in Jesus. This is what it should look like for us to give. It's, It's how to give. 
And the first one comes out in the big section from verse 10 of chapter 8 through verse 5 of chapter 9. Readiness is the key word throughout that section. Paul uses it several different times. It's the thread that ties it together. He uses it in verse 11. Finish doing it as well so that your readiness and desiring may be matched by your completing it. Verse 12, if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has. He uses it again in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 9 several times. I think what Paul's getting at here is, is that when, when you've experienced the grace of God in Jesus, when you know what it is to have been loved by Him at great cost to Him so that you could know the benefits and the riches of, of a relationship with God and the promises of life with Him forever, when you've tasted that, when you get it in your soul, that it creates in you a kind of readiness to share that love with other people. That's natural. It's deep. It's innate. You're focused on opportunity. You're just looking for your shot. That's how you live life. I think of uh, yesterday was Derby Day. Anybody else watch? Did anybody watch the Kentucky Derby? I missed it. It only takes like 90 seconds. Like nine hours of build up for 90 seconds. But I was watching some of the videos from last year with my sons trying to introduce them to what the Derby's all about. It's actually pretty bizarre, isn't it? I mean, that this is a thing, but be that as it may. We were watching these videos, and what I was noticing about these videos is it always starts with this huge gate. And you herd these, these horses into these gates, and these are some live wires. Like these horses are full of pent-up energy. They're just antsy. They're prancing around. They're fighting. They're rearing back up. They don't want to go into that gate. And once they're in that gate, all they see in front of them is open dirt. And they know they were made to run. So all they're waiting for at that point is that door to open. And they're waiting on opportunity. They're pent up with bodies full of unleashed, of, of, of energy waiting to be unleashed, waiting for that door to open. I think Paul's saying that on this focus on readiness all through this thread, that, that once you've tasted God's grace to you in your life, that you live life as, as one of these derby horses, just pent up energy, ready to be unleashed as soon as you see an open door. What you're looking for is opportunity. No one has to create urgency in you. you. You have that because you get how you've been loved and you want to reproduce it. You're just looking for, waiting for the, for the gate to open. I think that's why Paul's appealing to them in the way that he is, starting in verse 10. He's appealing to their desires. He's not twisting their arms. He's saying, look, I know you desired this work. I know that desire is still in you. Just finish doing it well so that your readiness in desiring it can be matched by your completing of it. He focuses on desire all through this, just like readiness. It's not coming to them like some sort of repo man or a bill collector or a collection agency. He's not coming to them to take what's owed. He's coming to them like a friend who loves them and wants grace for them and in them. And he's appealing to their desires. He knows for this to go well, they have to want it. Readiness is the key. What does it look like for you to be ready to give? I can think of, it, of a few different marks. Let me just give you a couple of examples here. I think one, one thing, one mark of readiness, this pent-up energy, ready to be unleashed wherever you see need, would be that you're planning to give, that you're proactive, looking for opportunities. I mean, think of the way, think of the energy that we often put into the purchase of something new. 
especially if it's a bigger purchase. You know, you're thinking about maybe upgrading your TV for your home theater system. Maybe it's a, a new car. I don't know. What, other, what else do people purchase? You know how it is. You do the research. Sometimes lots and lots of research. If you're a cheapskate like me, you're constantly looking for an angle, for some sort of special deal that usually is going to come back to bite you at some point. <laughs> your day sometimes can feel like up or down based on your prospects for getting this thing that you've put a lot of yourself into. Think of how proactive we are when we come at the purchase of something new we want to bring into our lives, something we think we want to need or want or need. And then I ask, I mean, do, do you plan to give like that? Are, are you looking proactively for needs that you could meet? Are you brainstorming to find ways to carve out more of your income for the needs of other people? Are you as proactive about giving as you are about buying? And that's a mark of readiness. And one of the reasons I think we, we give less than we do is not that we just hold on to what we have too greatly. That's part of it. Sometimes it's just greed in us, but that's not the only thing. Sometimes it's just apathy and distraction. We haven't become like these Macedonians Paul's writing about who are calling him, you know, like they're hounding him. They're like these student workers in the alumni office calling everybody, asking for money at 5 p.m. That's them. They're asking for Paul for a chance to give. They're proactive. I think if we're ready, that's, that's one way it'll show up. I think another way that it shows up, another mark of readiness would be follow through. That's what Paul's calling them for. I know you desired it, he says. Now I want you to complete it. It isn't enough just to have it in your heart to be generous to people. You know, all of us could say, yeah, I'm just, just trust me. Uh, I'm really generous at heart. I mean, my heart just loves the idea of giving to people. I just, re- it just makes me feel so good when I imagine giving to people. This is one of those things where if it's in your heart, it actually does show up. Sometimes you can't read each other's hearts, right? We need to be careful about, uh, about knowing what's going on in, every, in everyone else's hearts. I'm, I'm all for that kind of caution. But when it comes to giving, like, if, if it's in your heart, it'll show up in your giving. If you're not giving, it's because it's not in your heart. So follow through matters, not just readiness. Here's one last thing I'll mention just from what Paul says here. Another mark of readiness that he points to. I think if we're ready, if, it's, if, if we've tasted of God's grace to us in Jesus and that's made us want to share grace with other people and we're like those derby horses just pent up with energy looking for our opportunity, it'll make us a lot less sensitive to how much other people are giving and more focused on what we have and the opportunities that are in front of us to give. I'm getting this from what Paul says to them in verse 13. He says, if the readiness is there in verse 12, he says, if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So what we give is tied back to what we have. There's not some sort of uniform standard out there that applies to everybody about how much you should give. But then he says in verse 13, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. That as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. I think the reason Paul's having to say that in verse 13 is that he is anticipating their objection. He knows who he's writing to. These are people who had issues with money. They saw their money as a chance to project their status. It comes up in his other letter to them. So he knows that they're going to be tempted to look around at who's giving what. They might be tempted to think that 
that by him asking them to give, he's letting somebody else off the hook who's not going to be doing their fair share. That they're going to be preoccupied by, by a certain kind of fairness that Paul would say has no place in the heart and the life of somebody who's been loved by Jesus. Their instinct is going to be to make sure somebody else is not mooching off the goodwill of their gifts and those of others. But Paul wants them focused more on what they can give to the need. Whether I'm doing more than my fair share or not. And think back to that derby horse image. When that horse is running down that track, most of the time they're going to have blinders on, right? Because what you want them focused on is open track in front of them. You want them to see where they can run. Opportunity. You want them using the resources of all that energy that's in them to pursue the opportunity that's right in front of them. Most of the time, I think you're not wanting them to look around at the horses that are around them. Like, who's behind me? Who's in front of me? Who's coming? That's the jockey's job. You want the horse to see the open track and run. And that's what Paul wants for his friends. He wants their readiness channeled at this need, no matter who else is doing what. And that if everybody's doing whatever they can, based on their innate desire to help, then everyone's going to be taken care of. Somebody, I don't remember where the origin of this is, but I heard an example a while back. Um, You know, if you, if if everybody's looking out for their own interests and you come into a room of, you know, you got five people working on something and how many people in that team do you have thinking about you? One, right? Everybody's got, everybody's thinking about themselves. Everybody's focused on their own interests. But if everyone is focused on all the interests of others, then how many people do you have in that team of five attentive to your needs? You've got five because you're still attentive to your needs, let's be honest. And so is everybody else. Because what everybody's looking at is not who's doing what, but what needs to be done and what can I do? I think that'll be a mark of readiness modeled on what Jesus has done for us. When you connect with the grace of Jesus to you, what you notice is need and your ability to help out. That crowds out everything else. Here's a second mark of a giving that's modeled on God's giving to us in Jesus. We'll give readily. That's the first thing. We'll also give bountifully. Now, in between what I just have talked about at the end of chapter 8 and where I want to pick up now in the middle of chapter 9, Paul is giving a kind of description, introduction of all the people that he sent to them to help collect their money and take it on to the needy Christians in Jerusalem. So we just read all that together. I'm sure you probably picked up that that's what it is. It's him making sure that they know who they're dealing with when this letter reaches them. I want to pick up where he turns back again to his main point. In verse 6 where he says, the point is this. So he gets back for, away from those introductions, back into the meat of what he's saying about giving. And what he says is, is that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So he said that we should all be ready, that we should have hearts full of pent-up energy to meet needs. Now here, in pointing us to, to the fact we should be giving bountifully, I think he's, he's reinforcing something I mentioned earlier, that, that um, the amount of what we give does matter that intentions aren't enough. I mean, on the one hand, he has said he's aiming at their heart. He wants hearts captured by the gospel. The heart and not the amount is the key. But on another, in another sense, the amount matters. Good intentions aren't enough. Well-wishing doesn't count. 
I think that's why he points us to this in verse 6, to the need to give bountifully. Think about this. If you have a lot of money and your heart is ready to meet the needs around you, if you've got that readiness we talked about, and you also have resources, then you're going to inevitably share a lot of money. It's impossible for you to have readiness on one hand and affluence on the other hand and then give sparingly. That equation just doesn't work. To have readiness to give that he talked about earlier on, to have resources, affluent resources, and then to give sparingly. You can have readiness and give sparingly, if you will, when you're the widow that Jesus talks about in, in, in the Gospels. He, uses this, he, he highlights this widow who's got nothing. She gives her two coins. That's what she's got to give to the offering. And he says, that offering right there, that is a bountiful offering. Even though the amount wasn't great, it was great to her. And therefore, it was more than all these riches that these wealthy people were giving. And it was just a small percentage of what they owned. She gave everything. So you could have low resources and lots of readiness and have a small gift. That would make sense. But if you have a lot of resources and you have a meager gift, then that's a sign that you're missing readiness. You're missing a heart, innate heart drive to give. So how much is bountiful giving? (laughs) What does it look like to sow bountifully? That's what we're asking, I think. We we normally ask that, how much is asked of me? And it's dangerous to ask that, and I'm going to say why here in a minute, but I think it's a fair question. If I want to be faithful and I want to honor God's grace in my life, what he's done for me in Jesus by the way I give money, how much is that? Probably you've heard people talk about tithing. That's a pretty common phrase and practice among Christians and other uh, participants or adherents of other religions too. It's not just unique to Christianity. Tithing is the practice of giving a tenth of what you take in. Uh, you know, there's conversations about whether that should be before or after tax, or whether that's just about cash, or if it's about other assets as well, or what have you. And you know, well-meaning people can disagree. But the principle of a tenth of what you have is what's meant in tithing. It's something that's taught in the Old Testament, in the law. Something that was expected of ancient Israel. Now, in the New Testament, that principle is not taught again. It's not one of the things from the Old Testament that Jesus brings into the new, into this new kingdom that he's building and establishes as a new kind of law. He doesn't do that. It's part of an old set of ceremonial laws that were unique to Israel when they had a nation, when they had their own king, when they had their own laws to govern their life together that doesn't get reestablished in the New Testament. I think it's unhealthy to think about giving 10% of your money as something you have to do as a law in your life to be faithful to God. But, but every one of the laws in the Old Testament was given to Israel in response to God's grace to them. It's after God has saved them out of slavery in Egypt that he meets with them in the wilderness on Mount Sinai to give them laws. All of the laws that he gives them are ways of living from the grace he's already shown them as a way of showing their gratitude for the grace that he's already given them, as a way of living out of ongoing dependence on the same grace that it took for them to be delivered. So think of laws not as arbitrary rules, but as responses to the great grace of God in their lives. 
Now, if that's what those laws were about, and if giving a tenth of your income was a way to respond to God delivering Israel from Egypt, and if we now live on this side of Jesus, if we've experienced what Paul writes about in verse 9 of chapter 8, that the same God who made us didn't just deliver us from bondage to a physical, tangible nation, but entered into a body like ours, gave up the glory and life that he enjoyed with the Father and made himself nothing so that we could know something of his riches, if that's the grace we've experienced. And if we live not in ancient Israel, but in the most wealthy country in the history of the world, then I think it's fair to say that our goal, not a law, but our goal should be to give at least as much as they were asked to give. And if we're able to, to give even more. We don't have a law. There is no judgment given by God on us for failing to meet some standard that he's set. No judgment by us of each other if for one reason or another we're in a season of life where we can't give as much as we like. I think that the point is that we should really genuinely ask ourselves, can it really be that Christians, knowing not only the exodus, but the death of Jesus for us, would give less than ancient Israel as a rule, as a practice? And then we just sit with that. And we let God lead us in what to do. We should all be ready and we should all seek to give bountifully. The next mark is cheerfully. That's in verse 7. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Notice how carefully Paul's walking this line. He's just calling them to give bountifully, but now he won't tell them how much to give. Each person should give what they've decided on in their heart, he says. I think one reason we like the idea of tithing is that we like to know what's expected, especially the rule followers among us, you know, the type A driven type. We just want to know that we are doing what we're supposed to, all right? Give me a rule. Give me a rule to follow and I'll follow it. We like the idea of tithing because it makes things clear. But that's the wrong way to come at this. That's me saying, just tell me what I owe so that I can pay it. As if I've got some sort of debt to pay off or some sort of favor to earn. I think that what, what Paul's pointing us to is another question. Not how much do I owe so that I can pay it, but how much can I give? Not how much do I owe, but how much can I give? Remember the Macedonians. No compulsion, no arm twisting. They're begging Paul without him even asking them for the chance to contribute. Now, the kind of giving Paul's talking about here, of course, sometimes is going to be sacrificial. It will hurt. Sometimes you'll feel the pain. I don't think that him calling for us to give cheerfully means that we're always chipper and happy about it. Sometimes it will hurt. I think what he's saying is that if the bottom line of our gifts are really any other kind of service, not just money, anything we're giving from ourselves to the needs of others, if the bottom line of that, our bottom line experience, is how much it costs us rather than how meaningful it is to give. If the bottom line and the main focus for us is how much the, uh, is not how much the object of our giving is worth to us, but how much it costs us, then I think that's a sign that we're not a cheerful giver. For example, 
If you've been within earshot of me in the last week or so, you've heard me complaining about the reappraisal my home experienced at the hands of Nashville's totalitarian city government. (laughs) Uh, That's a joke for the record. I'm glad to live here under the government that we have, and I'm sure everything they did was fair. But I'm now going to have to pay substantially larger attacks on my home than I than I did last year, right? A lot of you have too. I've heard you guys chirping about it too. Now, when, I come time, when it comes time for me to pay that bill, I will pay it as a debt owed. That is how I will pay it. I will not pay it cheerfully. It is absolutely under compulsion. It's a duty or an obligation. It's been imposed on me and resented by me. Now, I feel completely different about that time. I was at McKay's Books over off Old Hickory Boulevard and found an Annie Dillard novel, one of my favorite novels by one of my favorite authors, signed by Annie Dillard for the low price of $2. Now, when I forked over the two bucks and began to brag to all of my friends about what I'd found, the bottom line of that transaction was not what it cost me, but how valuable this object was to me. You were hearing me as a cheerful giver of money because this object meant something to me. It meant something far more than what it cost me to obtain it. You would hear me talk about how valuable it was, not how costly it was. I think for us to be cheerful givers, that has to be the bottom line, the sort of main tone in our giving. That we're we're grateful for the chance to contribute something that's helpful. Ultimately, Jesus is our model. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, calls us to run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did what he did for joy because what he accomplished was precious to him, more precious than his own convenience or comfort. When he went to the cross, he looked through it to you, redeemed, at peace with him. And that was precious in his eyes. What would an auditor of your books say is precious to you? I want to close with one last mark that I'll just speak to for one minute. We should give trustingly. In verses 8 to 15 of chapter 9, Paul is celebrating God's ability to make all grace abound to us, to give us sufficiency in all things at all times, so that we can abound in every good work. He says in verse 10, The same God who gives seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. I think the reason Paul's got to coach them up like this, why he's got to remind them that God will give them, give to them so that they can give to others, is that he expects that their giving to others would be risky would be the kind of giving that makes them vulnerable, that would raise questions in their own mind about whether or not they'll have enough for themselves if they give in the way that they feel called to give. He's encouraging them because he expects them to need it. He expects them to be giving at a level that wouldn't be possible apart from God's ongoing faithfulness in their lives. I think a quick, a quick reading of the end of this chapter could make us think Paul's saying you should give to others because in the end that'll mean you'll get more. That it's a kind of investment that you get, can expect a kind of tit-for-tat relationship with God on giving. I think that is to misread this text completely. What he's saying is that you can give not 
not that you should give so that you can end up with more than you had to begin with, but you can give freely and generously because God will enrich you in every way to be generous. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Not be generous so that you get rich and have the life of your dreams, but give because God is going to give you so that you can keep giving. He will enable it, what he's called you to do. Sometimes I think the reason we give is not greed, don't give, is not greed, as one pastor observed, but it's often fear. I know that's kept me back from giving. Fear over the future, undesire for control of the future on our terms. And remember what Paul's doing here. This whole section, he's trying to show them what it looks like to give as if God really has become human for you, really has died a death he didn't deserve to die for you, really has promised you that he is now going to do everything necessary to bring you home to him. He's asking us to give as if that actually happened. And if the God who rules all things has loved us like that in Jesus, then what reason do we have for fear? Look what he's gone through to make sure we have everything we need. He's not going to let that work go undone because you decided to be too generous. Ultimately, we shouldn't fear talking about money because the way Paul's framing it is good for us to give. He's not twisting arms. He's not presenting a a model of God as someone who wants you to have less than what you have, who really wants to have his hand in your pockets to take joy out of your life. He's writing to us assuming that the path to joy is through this kind of radical generosity that is good for us when we let go of the things that otherwise might give us an illusion of security and success and put everything on God's ability to deliver on his promises. That joy and freedom comes to us when we give like this. Let's pray that God will make it so for us. Father, we, will, we want to be able to live in the light of your goodness in Jesus. There's so many things about us that hold us back and only your spirit has the power to change us. So we pray that you would, that your gospel, what you've done through Jesus, would be deeply rooted in our hearts so that it shows itself in our lives, including our pocketbooks. Help us to see where we are holding on to what we have too, too tightly. Help us to want to meet the needs of others and show us needs that we can meet. Finally, we pray you give us joy in it. Not guilt, not fear, not greed, but joy in our opportunity to use what you've given to serve other people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.